Colossians chapter 1. Uh, we're going to read the end of the chapter. That's verse 24 to the end. And then we're going to go right to chapter 2 up to verse 7. So I'm covering the end of chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2. Colossians chapter number 1, beginning in verse 24. This is what the Word of God says. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Verse 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord... So walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Oh God, how we need to hear from you. And we thank you that for those of us who are in Christ, you have given us ears to hear. Help us, Lord, to receive your word with faith and joy. If there be any here today who do not know you, would you please grant repentance? In Christ's name, amen. So chapter 1, verse 28, Paul tells the Colossians that his goal for them is to present everyone mature in Christ. This is why he labors. This is why he struggles. This is why he prays. This is why he's willing to be shipwrecked and stoned and kicked out of synagogues and travel because he wants to see people mature in Christ. And when you go to chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, we also see that Paul, in verse 7, wants the Colossian church to be established in the faith. It's well-grounded, rooted, solid, and firm in what they believe. And then he ends verse 7 with abounding in thanksgiving. Mature in Christ, established in the faith, and abounding in thanksgiving. These are the three things that we will, by God's grace, focus on today. It's the first Sunday of 2024, and I am, or at least I feel, several pounds heavier than the last time I preached. And that's because I really love food. And it's been a few weeks of feasting, Christmas, New Year's, birthdays, lots of food. Some of you know this. I was actually given a present just today before church, and it was more food. And I love it. I really do. Now, when I was a little kid, I would have been satisfied with just fast food. Fast food, junk food. I still like it, but I realize that one cannot live on Burger King alone. As I've matured and I've grown up, my taste for better ingredients, fine ingredients, quality food has increased. I think we could all speak to that. Whether we're disciplined or not in eating healthy, the older we get, the more we realize that nutrition is good and junk is bad, no matter how good it tastes. You may have seen that there are some restaurants and some products that market themselves as using the highest quality ingredients, right? The finest ingredients. 
And we know that's not always true. But there's something captivating about those who are looking to be healthy and mature to receive things that are maybe not so processed, that are fresh, that are high quality, natural, and nutritious. The immature don't care much about those things, but the mature typically do. We recognize that quality food needs quality ingredients. So now when we think about the church, and the church is not a building, it's a living organism that needs food to survive and to grow, we need to apply these same principles. And especially today as we are embarking on the new year, and we know that our church, Bread of Life, Risen Savior Church, is embarking on this journey towards independence, we have to ask what are those quality ingredients that we must have in order for our church to be healthy, in order for us as a church to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, to grow in our knowledge of him, to be effective in the community. What are those ingredients? When you think of the ingredients of a healthy church, what comes to mind? I mean, I hope if you've been here long enough, you know what our emphasis is, the word of God, preaching the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you look out there in, in the world, you might find all sorts of things that people might suggest a church must have this in order to be healthy and good. Maybe we need a marketing strategist or a more casual approach to worship, a high-quality espresso machine in the foyer, a fog machine, the director of weekend experience to help us to navigate what a Sunday looks like. Or one of my favorites that I've mentioned several times before, cup holders in the seats. If you don't know, I had, I had told a story a couple years ago about a church that literally in their postcard in marketing this new church was that our seats have cup holders. So you can bring in your latte and, and so on. That's not our approach here. And I know, church, as we embark on this journey, change could be hard. As your pastor, I've met with many, if not all of you, and we've talked about these changes that are coming to our church, and some of us are a little timid, a little hesitant. And when I probe a little bit, it's not necessarily that we are doing anything wrong or unscriptural, but let's face it, change is hard. We're looking to be established. This church is looking to grow roots here in North Arlington or Kearney or wherever God places us in this area. We're looking to be self-governing taking the lessons that we've learned from God's Word and from our sending church in Wayne and almost now five years of doing church in this area. And we're looking, in a sense, to let go of the hand of the one who sent us. Not letting go of their friendship, not letting go of communion with them, but becoming a self-governing, self-sustaining, independent church. And I submit to you, brothers and sisters, that in doing so, we do not need to reinvent the wheel. We do not need to go rogue. We do not need to come up with something new, forgetting everything we were taught and learned, or find the next big thing or next big trend. We simply need to be faithful to God. And so in this passage, there are three ingredients, three goals. As, as people look to make New Year's resolutions, maybe some of you do, some of you don't. I stopped a long time ago because they usually end by the end of January. But these goals here, these are not just resolutions. These are good, righteous, apostolic, biblical, Christ-centered goals that we all can have for each other and for our church as a whole. That we would press on as a church to be mature in Christ, established in the faith, and abounding in thanksgiving. And I know these are basic and I know this is not anything revolutionary, but yet these are things that paradoxically will change the world. If everyone who knew Christ sought to be mature in him and to be firm and established in the faith and to live a life that is abounding in thanksgiving, that would impact lives in our community and around the world. These goals are also important because they don't change based on circumstances. We may be comfortable right now in this building, and it's a beautiful building, but you know, as a church plant, nothing is forever. 
We may be here for 10, 15 more years. We may have to move in a few months. I'm saying maybe. I haven't heard anything. There's nothing behind that. But you just have to be ready for these kinds of things, right? We don't know. Our church is growing. Who knows what will happen? Maybe our church will shrink. We don't know what the next political season will bring. We don't know if there's going to be an actual storm that changes all of our lives. We don't know. We don't know. And you can read the histories of many churches and church plants and church startups and we just simply have to submit ourselves to the Lord. But no matter what happens, no matter where we meet or where we don't meet, no matter how big our church grows or whether our church stays the same or shrinks, these three things do not change. These will always be three goals for every Christian. And they're not based upon circumstance. So I want to take them one by one. The first one is mature in Christ. Mature in Christ. Look with me again in verse 27 of chapter 1, where Paul says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What is the mystery? It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim. Him. May it always be said that risen Savior Church is a church that proclaims Him. Not ourselves, not the latest fad, but Him, Jesus Christ. Verse 28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone, that is evangelism, that is flee from the wrath to come, that is you are a sinner who needs salvation, warning and, he goes on to say, teaching everyone discipleship, wisdom. Why? Why does Paul do this? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil. That means strive. Put my energy into you. Struggling with all his energy. That's Christ. That he works powerfully in me. So think about this. If God were to give you his divine energy, his power, what would you use it for? Paul says, I'm taking all I can of God's power in me to warn and teach you, believers, particularly here Colossians, so that you can be mature in Christ. That's the end goal here. So what does that mean? When we think of maturity, we often think of growing up, right? Growing up from a child to a teenager to an adult. We think in terms of age. We think in terms of physical growth. But the Bible tells us that we could actually be older in age and still immature. You could be a Christian longer than someone else next to you and still be more immature than that person. But you hold your place there for a moment and go with me to Hebrews chapter 5 and you'll see what I mean. Hebrews chapter 5. And in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, Paul, uh, we don't know if it's Paul, but the, the writer of Hebrews, through the Spirit, says, About this we have much to say, this is verse 11, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And so the writer of the Hebrews assesses maturity not based upon intellect, not based upon age, but based upon discernment and wisdom. And he's writing to presumably a mixed crowd. And he's saying that there are some in this crowd, no matter how old they are, physically, age-wise, they become dull of hearing, and they can't eat the food for the mature. They've got to drink the milk because they've become immature. And so likewise, brothers and sisters, as we think about our own Christian lives, don't kid yourself in thinking, oh, I've been a Christian for five years, 10 years, 15 years, 30 years. All of us can learn. Some are immature, 
But even those who, of us who might be mature have areas of our lives that are immature. And if we stop seeing that, we stop growing, it does a disservice to the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Leonard Ravenhill said, maturity comes from obedience, not from age. And so we go back to Colossians. Paul writing, he never got to see them face to face like he got to see some other churches. He heard about some false doctrines creeping in. He's concerned for them. And he's telling them, here's why I do what I do, so that you would be mature. And I believe that for us as a, as a church plant looking for that establishment of independence, we should have that same goal in mind. That we would be a church filled with people who are striving to be mature. Now, we can make a huge list, I'm sure, of the difference between a mature and an immature Christian. Let me give you a few. I think I have six here. They're not going to be on the screen. But six differences between an immature and a mature Christian so that we can take inventory and ask where we are with the Lord. Notice, though, that Paul says mature in Christ. So this is about how we apply our faith in Christ to the day-to-day, not, not something, some other skill, but our faith in Christ. So number one, the immature are reactive, whereas the mature are proactive. And a lot of these, you'll notice there's a similarity between those who are still children and those who are adults. Typically, when you're a child, a young child, you react, right? That's why we play peekaboo. At some point in your life, you realize that when someone covers their face, they're actually not gone, right? But it's cute because we, we tend to just react with what we can see. As you move on in life and get older, you see a much bigger picture and you tend to be less reactive. Kids react. Adults are prepared. They tend to be more prepared for the future, prepared for what's, what lies ahead, Children often jump to conclusions. Maybe they assume the worst about a situation. I mean, I tell you, I was a middle and high school teacher. I know. Sometimes before I'm about to, you know, I'll say, um, you know, on Friday you're going to have a test. And before I could say, and we're going to review for the next few days, before I even say the rest of the sentence, the kids are like, oh, test, we're not ready for the test. Just wait. I'm going to explain, right? But immature people tend to react without thinking, without listening. The mature understand what the Bible says, that everyone in Christ will be persecuted, that there will be trouble in this world, that there will even be trouble in the church. But if trouble comes your way as a Christian, and you're surprised by that, I have to say that's an immature response. Matter of fact, the Bible literally says, do not be surprised when trials come your way. So you come to the Christian life thinking that, oh, I've accepted Christ and now everything will work out. And you have some growing up to do. There will be trouble outside the church with those who try to persecute, but there will also be trouble inside the church. The sheep will not always get along. And I, understand, I don't mean to make light of that because that disunity in the church is, is a disastrous thing. But don't be surprised. If even Jesus' own disciples were fighting over who would be first in the kingdom. If, if in the very early church, Paul had to correct Corinth for their immorality and the Galatians for turning to a different gospel and the Romans for not getting along over holidays and meats and drinks, then of course, in our age too, we will have disagreements. Matter of fact, this Wednesday, as we resume our, our Bible study on the church, we're going to be talking about how to love people who are different than yourself. But if that kind of life together with people that you don't agree with on everything or that, that may sin against you scares you and you think this just shouldn't be happening in a church, let me tell you something. You don't have a biblical understanding of what church is. Immature people react. Mature people are proactive because they understand that these are the results of living life in the flesh, in a sin-cursed world, even in an imperfect church. And so we take action. We pray. We put on the armor of God. We are less surprised when trouble comes our way. Secondly, the immature 
fear all sorts of changes, but the mature embrace God's leading. The immature are fearful of changes. Now, this is not to guilt or shame anyone who thinks that as our church seeks to change some things that you are wrong for thinking that way. I I resonate with you. Change is hard. But we can't, as a church, have gone through two years of the book of Acts and watched how man planned one thing, but God said, you know, instead of going here, go here. Instead of doing that, do this. The mature were those who stayed the course and listened to God's voice and obeyed God even if God's plans did not accord with their original plans. But those of us who are less mature will often get scared when things don't go the way we planned. The mature takes Scripture and applies Scripture to the given event and asks, is this worth adjusting? We don't say things like, well, we've always done it this way. I mean, really, churches will split over these things. We've always met on Wednesday at 7 p.m. We can't move it to 7.30 p.m. We always had a committee on, you know, so on and so forth. Things have to change. The battle cry of the Reformation was semper reformanda. That means reformed according to God's word and always reforming. Reformed and always reforming. If we believe as Protestants that Luther and Calvin and Zwingli were right to bring biblical change to the church, then in that same spirit we have to assess, are we doing things scripturally? And the mature will look at that and say, what scripture says is more important than even our own tradition and the way we've always done things. The immature will find such security in tradition and the way we've always done things. They would not be open to things to change, even if the Bible dictates otherwise. The mature follow God's leading, even if it doesn't accord with their original plan. Thirdly, the immature hates correction. I mean, you see this all throughout the book of Proverbs, right? Fools despise correction. The mature embrace correction. I think this is probably one of the most telltale signs between a mature and an immature Christian. Now, of course, uh, of course, I don't think anyone loves correction, especially in the moment. The book of Hebrews tells us all discipline is unpleasant and painful at the time, right? It's very rare for us to say, oh yeah, give me more rebuke. I just really want that. Maybe that's you. You've attained to a level of maturity that none of us can relate to. But for most of us, correction and rebuke, it does sting. There is something we feel inside of us that wants to defend ourselves. But if you're mature, you will realize this is for your good. You will realize that God is doing something. That even if the person coming at you is 90% wrong, there's probably 10% that will help you to grow in Christ. But the immature, and you know this, with, with young children, we, when we were children, we, we didn't like discipline. And, and eventually we find ways to, to go around the discipline or to save ourselves from discipline by lying or not telling our parents the truth and so we don't get caught. But the mature understand that though God has saved me, I am chief of sinners. I am still a work in progress. And I need the Lord to correct me, to prune me, and to conform me to the image of Christ. And because mature people understand how to handle correction, they then desire to correct others in the proper way. And so a sort of flip side to this is an immature Christian is a contentious person who's always pointing out fault in everyone. The mature understand in love that charity covers a multitude of sin, that love hopes all things, that is not our job to go around and be everyone's police, policeman. Mature people desire loving correction and know how to give loving correction. They are not contentious, nor are they stubborn when handling the truth. Fourthly, immature people or immature Christians look for that quick result, whereas mature Christians wait it out over the long run, or they see Christ-likeness over the long run. Quick results versus in it for the long run. 
right? When we're immature as children or as new Christians, we, we try the next big thing, the next big fad, the church, dis, the church uh, spiritual discipline that worked for this person, didn't work for me. I tried that. I went to that church once, didn't like it, nothing changed. Want the results. I, I received Christ, but my bank account it didn't get any bigger. My marriage is still in shambles. I, I tried that. I'm done. And we, we, we are tossed to and fro. That's the Bible says immature people are tossed to and fro over every wind of doctrine. And I would even say every wind of practice as well. And just as the young kids go from trend to trend, the immature are tossed in the same way. Immature people fall for the latest fad. Fads are an interesting thing, right? Have you seen Stanley Cups? Not the hockey trophy, but Stanley Cups have been around for a long time. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, they're like the the hottest thing, right? Just take some marketing. I'm not saying that they're bad. I think I saw one in the pew somewhere, which is good. I'm glad you got one. You got one too. Okay, great. It's a great thing, but it's not the end though. You don't have to wait from 2 a.m. in front of Target to get your Stanley Cup. Immature people fall prey to these kinds of scams, these kinds of fads, these kinds of, you need this, this will enhance your life. And don't think for a moment that's only the world that comes into the church. I have seen, and maybe you have, being a Christian um, for many years now, the trends, and, and sometimes they're good things, by the way, but every doctrine, every practice has its own little little click, right? The if onlys. If only, if only every church, one of my friends was telling me, if, if every church prayed to the Holy Spirit, there'd be revival. So the problem with our churches is we don't pray, we pray in the Holy Spirit, we have to pray to the Holy Spirit. And since we don't pray to the Holy Spirit, that, and if we just do this thing, or it takes me back years ago, if everyone used the King James Bible, and you fill in the blank, right? Family integration, biblical manhood, people's ideas about these things. This, this is what's going to save the church. We just have to do these things, right? And the immature look beyond the basic things. You have Christ, the hope of glory. And we say, it's not enough. We need to homeschool. And if everyone homeschools, then the Lord will send. Homeschool's great, but it's not the cause of revival. The immature look for trends because they're not satisfied with the substance that we have. And they think that those things are going to change overnight, send revival. But the mature Christian realizes that we are works in progress, our church is a work in progress, and we will see Christ's likeness in our lives over the long run. Jesus set this example for, for us. He called 12 disciples. How many times did, did he perform a miracle and have to turn around and say, you guys still don't get it? If he said, I'm done with you, I give up on you, oh boy, we'd be in a lot of trouble. But he's in it for the long run. And even I want to encourage you, brother or sister, in your spiritual life, that that sin that you don't have yet victory over, that area of your life where it still needs strengthening, don't give up hope. But don't look to the latest fad or trend. Look to Christ, the hope of glory, and see how he will work in your life over time, and you will have victory. Immature people, Christians in particular, tend to be more self-oriented, whereas the mature Christian is others-oriented. Again, children often think about themselves. It's very rare to see a child who's not taught to share, to willingly share, or willingly give someone the last cookie on the tray. We think about ourselves. And I wonder how many of us, even as adult Christians who've been in the faith for a long time, Consider ourselves before we consider others. Philippians is very clear in chapter 2. To consider others more important than yourself. Do you realize as a member of this church that your actions, not only on Sunday morning, but throughout the week, impact the body? You are a part of this body. Your actions, your behaviors impact others, affect the body. When, when, when you come to church, are you looking for ways not only to be served, but to serve? Immature people will wait and sit on their hands until someone says, hey, we have a need over here. Can we sign you up to help? But the mature will take initiative 
They will see needs. They will come out of their comfort zone and they will help where help is needed. And if everyone did that, we can shoulder the ministry much more effectively and give those who serve day in and day out a break. Immature people look to themselves. Mature people look to others. And then number six, and then again, we have, I'm sure you could think of like 10 more things, is that the immature only see the present, what's in front of them but the mature consider all of it. The big picture. And that's similar to what I said earlier about quick results. The immature only see what's in front of them, but they fail to see that even the Word of God, seeds will grow. Seeds will be planted. I mean, I've learned this over my life, and I'm not claiming to to have achieved any sort of maturity in all areas, but as a preacher, it's easy for us to assess your immediate reaction to a sermon as whether or not it was effective. And so we start thinking about ourselves. If I had, if I had said this a different way, maybe I'd get more amens. If, if my sermon was better structured, maybe so-and-so wouldn't have slept. It seemed dead in the room today. And when we start, you know, can, I, can I say amen, you know? Listen, there's a temptation to do that sometimes. But over the years, I realized that This is the Word of God. And as it goes forth from this pulpit, I don't mean all my stories and my jokes, I mean as this Word goes from the pulpit and lands in your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit, it will have its work. And there are times where I may walk away and think, I'm not sure if that sermon hit anybody well today. And then it could be a week, a month later. I remember when this was said in a sermon, like, wow. And so we don't think of just the present. And why? Not because of my preaching. Because of my faith in the Word of God. The Word of God will do its work. And the same is true for evangelism. Brothers and sisters, as as we look to 2024, we want to go back to a regular time of evangelism and increase our evangelism. And you're going to go out. I hope you all join us, whether it's preaching at Red Bulls Arena, whether it's walking up and down Ridge Road or Kearney Avenue, whether it's door hangers, whatever we might be doing. There will be many days where we come back and we say, no one seemed interested. People took the track and they threw it on the floor. And it will be discouraging. But if you're only looking at the present, you will be so discouraged you won't come back. But if you realize that you're sowing seeds and God can do with those seeds what he pleases, and that as we sow seeds, the kingdom grows because Jesus taught us this, that the kingdom will grow then we are faithful to the task and we continue to be fervent in evangelism. I can go on and on about these things, but the mature see the future, not because they're psychic, but they see what the Word of God says about the work of His Word. Now we can make a bigger list, but the point here is that Paul wants the Colossians to be mature in Christ. And my prayer for myself and for all of you as well is that we would strive towards this. I won't take as much time on these next two points. But the second thing Paul says is that he wants the Colossian church to be established in the faith. So verse 4, 5, and 6, or 4 to 7 in chapter 2 says this, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith. There are three things I want to point out here. Verse 5, he says, firmness of your faith. Verse 7, he uses the words rooted and built up, and then he goes on to say established. So firm, rooted and built up, and established. All those words kind of convey the same idea that our faith would be solid, that it would be immovable, that it would be tenacious, that it would be able to persevere through the toughest affliction or false arguments would bounce off of it. See, that's what Paul's writing this. Why he says in verse 4, I don't want anyone to delude you with false arguments. He's concerned that there are false teachers coming into Colossae to teach them false doctrine. And he says, I want you not to be deluded, therefore rest in the firmness of your faith. Because if you have a faith that is firm and established and rooted, those false ideas will bounce off. That's what he's hoping for. 
And again, brethren, I hope that for you and me as we continue in this ministry, that we would be a church that has deep roots, roots in the faith, that has a firm faith. And and Paul does use the term here uh, in verse 7, the faith. So he's not only referring to your belief, but also that body of doctrine that we've received. And I ask you, are you firm in that? Are you taking advantage of the resources that are in front of you to know the faith that we confess? Do you know what you're supposed to believe and why you believe those things? I'm not saying we all have to be systematic theologians, but that we believe what the Bible says is true. And you will find as you research, as you search the Scriptures, as you attend classes in the church and listen to sermons and Bible studies and you grow in your knowledge of the faith, it will cease to be just academic head knowledge. But it will be the faith that grounds you in this world. And you can start to see the trends of this world and interpret them through the faith. Every year I do something different for my morning devotions. This past year, 2023... I read through one systematic theology textbook. And I have to say, it was very helpful. They were, it's, every chapter is just a new, a different doctrine. The doctrine of the church. The doctrine of Christ. The doctrine of eschatology. The doctrine of angels. And it was helpful for me to refresh myself in those doctrines. Doctrine is not something that is just for Sundays. Think about this. Our doctrine of God as a sovereign God helps us not to fear day to day. Our doctrine that God is a powerful God reminds us that it's not our job to change anyone's heart, but that God can change someone's heart. Our doctrine of what we believe to be true about the church will inform how we act among the church and the priority we give to the church. Our doctrine of biblical stewardship will guide us in how we use our resources and finances. Our doctrine of Christ, who He is and what He's done, will lead to greater worship of Christ. And I can go on and on. We have a treasure chest of beautiful doctrines, teachings of the Christian faith. And Paul's desire for the Colossians, who, by the way, didn't have the resources you and I have, couldn't go to the bookstore and find a systematic theology book, never heard of Spurgeon or Luther or the Puritans, but what they did have was apostolic truth. And Paul said, I would that you were rooted and grounded and firm and built in the faith. And I pray that would be true of our church. No matter where we are, no matter how big or small, no matter how popular or not, that we would be a church that is mature in Christ, and rooted in the faith. Thirdly, and lastly, abounding in thanksgiving. Now this is the very end of my text today, verse 7. And it just, it's almost like a footnote, like a passing comment, right? So why, why is this in the outline? Why does this deserve its own point? It's almost like Paul said, you know, I want you to be mature, I want to be rooted, abounding in thanksgiving. But it's not an afterthought. This is spirit-inspired scripture. Paul here is giving the Colossians the result of what it looks like to be mature in Christ and established in the faith. You see, if we don't, if we don't end up in the end of verse 7, then these other two things are in vain. Because you could be mature and then pr- take pride in your maturity. You could be solid and established in the faith and just be book smart and be that, that guy who's always, you know, I know theology. If these two things don't result in this thing, if your maturity in Christ and your establishment of the faith doesn't result in an abundance of thanksgiving, then what's the point? I would argue that you're actually not very mature. Abounding in thanksgiving. I love this phrase. Just like, think about a flower. A flower is planted, firmly rooted, receiving all the necessary ingredients of sunlight and water and plant food 
And as it matures, what will it eventually do? It will bloom. It will be a display of God's creative beauty. For you and me to pursue maturity and establishment in the faith, it must then result in our lives blooming for the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be walking, living, breathing sacrifices of worship for him. When Paul says in verse 7, abounding in thanksgiving, he's talking about praise and worship to Christ. That no matter where you are in life or what trial you're going through, you can praise Jesus Christ. I love the word abounding. Verse 7, abounding in thanksgiving. That means no boundaries. He would that the Colossians are so rooted in the faith, so connected to Christ, that they would see no boundaries to their worship and praise. None. See, the mature know that there are no boundaries to praise. Not persecution, nakedness, famine, or sword. Not the loss of your job or even the loss of a loved one. Not the disappointments in life. Not what happens outside in politics or world affairs or worldly pursuits. There are no boundaries to our praise. And why not? Look at verse 3. Because he says, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, you have everything you need to be a joyful people, overflowing, abounding with praise and worship because you have Christ. And because you have Christ, you have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You see that in verse 3? All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And we are looking for those things everywhere else sometimes when everything you need is in Christ. You have everything in Christ. He is the fairest of 10,000, the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star, the ruler of the nations, the Lord of all creation, the Son of God and Son of Man. And no matter what might come, that doesn't change. Verse 3 never changes. Christ will always be the one in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so as we are rooted in him, that is connected to him, we will then abound with thanksgiving. Let it be said of our church, not only that we are mature and established, but that we are a people of praise. We're not an arrogant bunch of people. We know our doctrine. That's great. We're mature. We don't have time for foolishness. That's great too. But are we thankful? Are we a people who exhibit joy? What are the boundaries that you have set up to your own thankfulness? Because Paul here says abounding in thankfulness, and some of us, I think we have a limit. May it be that as our church moves forward in 2024 and beyond, that we would be mature in Christ, established in the faith, and abounding in thanksgiving. So that raises the question then, how, how do we get there? What are, the, what are the steps? If I convinced you that Paul's goals for Colossians are our goals, you might ask, now what do we do? How do we get to this point where we can be these three things? And I think that that might be a sign of a conscience not yet mature. <clears throat> because while it's good that we want to have these three things and we want to put it into action, we have to realize that it's not law it's going to bring us to this. It's not the law. I don't have for you five steps, 12 steps, or any amount of steps that will bring you to maturity, establishment, and abounding in thanksgiving. I'll give you an illustration that I hope makes sense. Um, I may have mentioned earlier that I like food. <clears throat> so somebody uh, for Christmas gave me a Panera Bread gift card. And I, I go to Panera a lot. I'm there at least three times a week. That's like my traveling office. And um, no way I could have lunch there every day. That would, that would not be good stewardship. They're kind of pricey. And not very tasty anymore. Um, but I had a gift card. When you have a gift card, you feel like a king, right? It's like, oh, I can get whatever I want. So the other day, I got a frozen drink. Haven't had one of these in a while. Frozen cold brew with caramel. 
whipped cream on top. Delicious, cold, caffeinated beverage. Everything you would ever want in a drink, but you don't want to pay with your own cash. You use your gift card, and you, you feel good in every way. It's just a wonderful thing. Um, I don't know if this is true in all of America, but here, at least in New Jersey, Panera Bread uses paper straws. Paper straws do not hold up in frozen drinks. So when you, you, know, you get this drink that's cold and frozen and caffeinated and caramelly and beautiful, and you just want to drink it, obviously, that's why you bought it. And after three sips, it's not going through the straw. It's frustrating. Uh, I became the guy at Panera with several straws on my table, all unwrapped because I was trying to drink two or three sips and then use another one, and then it just became too messy. If I had a better straw, a plastic straw, probably wouldn't have been a problem, right? But do you understand that, that my frustration with my paper straw has no bearing on the drink inside? I can't access that drink, but the drink is still cold and delicious and caffeinated and caramelly, but there's a problem. There's a lack of connection, isn't there? Likewise, we as people fail to have a connection to God because of our sins. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says our sins have separated us from God. The Bible says we are at enmity with God. The reason that we don't enjoy God's presence and, and delight and we don't have all the wisdom of Christ is because we don't have access to it because of our sin. We are like a paper straw trying to bring in this beautiful drink, but we cannot. So something must happen. A change must happen. And it's not more paper straws. It's a completely different straw. Something, something completely different. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that prior to your faith in Christ, Christ was always good, but you could not access him because in your sin and in your sinful nature, there's a disconnection between you and God. And only God can bridge that gap. God must transform you into a vessel that can receive him. You can taste and see that the Lord is good, but you must be changed. The problem is not with him. The problem is with you and me. This is the gospel, brothers and sisters, that when we could not come to God, God came to us. No matter how hard we tried, we couldn't. And so God in his love sent his son to die and pay the penalty for our sins and rise the third day and gave this promise to everyone who turns from their sin and comes to Christ that he will make you a new creature. So let me speak to the unbeliever in the room or listening by live stream. If you have not yet come to Christ, no matter what you do, you will not be able to experience the benefits of knowing him until you come and believe in him. Turn from your sin. Don't try to do it on your own. He must change you, and he promises to do so for everyone who comes to him by faith. But now let me address those of us who are in Christ, who say, I want to be more mature. Why am I not more mature? What do I need to do? You're not a paper straw. There's nothing that you can do to change yourself. And that's why Paul says in verse number 7, or verse 6, which is the application, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. That's the answer. Wait, what? That's the answer? Yes. The same way you were saved is the same way that you grow. It's by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your lack of maturity in any area doesn't begin with some self-flagellation. It doesn't begin with some asceticism or ritual. It begins with faith in Christ. The one who said, if you abide in me, you will bear fruit. So maybe the reason some of us aren't growing isn't because we're not saved. We've been transformed. 
You've been transformed. It's because you left your first love. It's because you're not abiding in him. It's because you're looking to make yourself grow with junk food and not the means of grace that he gave you. He gave you the means of grace. He gave you the word of God. He gave you fellowship with the brethren. He gave you the Lord's Supper. He gave you his Holy Spirit. Is there anything that we lack? Or is it a matter of not believing, not abiding? And so, brothers and sisters, all of us, myself included, who desire to grow, to grow in Christ, to be established in our faith, to walk in Him, is not about the law, but it's about Christ. And I would encourage you and us as a church that we would open our eyes because everything we need is right in front of us. All the wisdom, all the treasures dwells in Christ and you have access. You have access. Don't kid yourself. You have access. Romans 5 tells us, having peace with God, we have access. And if you are abiding in Him, you will grow. So brethren, as we embark on this journey in 2024 as a church, we don't need a fog machine or cup holders in the seats, a 20-piece band or a marketing strategist. We have the gospel. We have deep roots. We have the Bible. We have the means of grace. We can mature and we are maturing and if there's anything I could encourage you who maybe have grown stagnant is come back to Christ. Make Him your priority. He'll take care of the rest. He's the one who saved your soul. And it's His will that you are conformed to His image. And I ask you, are you trusting in Him today to do that in your life? This is nothing new. Nothing revolutionary. But yet it's life-giving and world-changing that you and I, by the grace of God, would be mature in Christ established in the faith and abounding in thanksgiving. And so I invite you to go all in. Let's go all in together. Let's shoulder this ministry together. Let's move on in Christ with Him at the head and us simply believing and following Him. Let's take some time.